Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So we live in a culture that's fascinated by disaster movies and end-of-the-world type of movies, apocalyptic movies. Think about how Hollywood has portrayed the end of the world. Now, Hollywood, not biblical theology, um, they're these movies have made a lot of money over the years. You can go all the way back to the year I was born, 1971, there was the movie The Omega Man with Charlton Heston. You've got the Mad Max Road Warrior movies with Mel Gibson. There was a reboot about six or seven years ago as well. I don't know if you guys remember the made-for-TV movie that was big when I was in middle school. It was in 1983. It was the day after. It was what happened after there was an atomic bomb dropped on America. You have Armageddon with Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. You've got the day after tomorrow. You've got the Book of Eli with Denzel Washington. And then there's that famous song by, we're talking about Duran Duran earlier, not Duran Duran, but R.E.M. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. So our culture is fascinated with the end times. Not to mention televangelists and prophecy experts that have been predicting when the end will be. And do you realize there's nothing new about people predicting the end of time? Let me just go through history here. In 115 AD, Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, wrote this, the last times are upon us. 115 AD, okay? In 180 AD, church father Irenaeus predicted that 500 AD would be the date for the end. Okay, so 500 AD. Spanish monk Beatus stated that he would live to see the end of the world in 800 AD. But he died in 798. Okay? December 31st, 999 AD, the turn of the century. The St. Peter's Basilica in Rome was thronged with a mass of people worried that it would be the end of the world. 1501, Christopher Columbus announced that the end would be in 1656. I don't know how he came up with that date. But even Christopher Columbus predicted the end. 1697, Cotton Mather, he was a preacher in New England. He predicted the end would come in 1716. And when it didn't come, he changed it to 1736. Now, in recent history, the past 100, 115 years, 1910, Halley's Comet sparked predictions of the end. 1938, you guys remember, don't remember this, but maybe you've heard stories about Orson Welles went on the radio and he narrated the War of the Worlds and people thought the end had come because he was so captivating in how he told that. Um, famous end times televangelist Jack Vanapee. I don't know if you guys know who Jack Vanapee is, but he's predicted the end many times. He predicted it in 1976, then he changed it to 1992, then he changed it to 1996, and I'm not sure what he's changing it to now with all the stuff going on in Israel, but he's changed it. And then there's the famous book that came out in 1988. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. I don't know where that book is now, but you probably can't find it on any of the bookshelves. So we get to the part in Daniel where I told you it's going to get a little weird, a little difficult. 
So chapters 1 through 6 were pretty straightforward. These were narrative. The, the genre is really what they call court narratives, or, or narratives about Daniel and the three friends in the king's court. Remember, everything's been happening around these kings. Now as we go to chapter 7, we get to, and I'm going to explain this in just a few moments, we get to a new genre. So Daniel has two different types of, of literature. The first is court narratives that basically tell the accounts of, of Daniel and what happened to him. That's chapters 1 through 6. Chapters 7 through 12 are what we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. And um, let's just read verse 1 because it sets the stage. And you guys are going to have to hang with me tonight because, I, like I said at the beginning of this study, when we get to chapter 7 and beyond, we may have to scratch our heads at times and say, this is a little difficult water. So, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now, we're going back in time. This is not chronological. Because remember, Daniel's outlived four kings. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, and Cyrus. So we're going back in time to Belshazzar, which was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. And Daniel's narrating or telling us the dream he had. Very similar. So from here on out, this is going to be very similar to the book of Revelation. And what John the Apostle had a vision or a revelation of what would happen in the end. Daniel is having a dream here, and he writes down the dream. Now, before we explore Daniel chapter 7, I want us to describe apocalyptic literature briefly. Now, why do we call it apocalyptic literature? Well, it comes from the Greek word apocalypse. The Greek word apocalypse is really where we get the word revelation. Apocalypsis is the Greek word revelation. That's the book of Revelation. Apocalypse means an unveiling, an uncovering. So we get the word revelation. So let me give you some characteristics of apocalyptic literature. So there's a few books in the Bible that are apocalyptic in nature. Daniel 7 through 12 and definitely the book of Revelation and parts of the book of Ezekiel what we would call apocalyptic. You read apocalyptic literature differently than you would read a psalm. Psalm is poetry. You read apocalyptic literature different than you would read Paul's epistle to the Philippians. You read apocalyptic literature different than you'd read a gospel, like the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's not narrative. It's not a letter. It's not poetry. It's not wisdom literature like Proverbs. It's not law like Leviticus. It's its own genre. So this is not in your notes, but let me just kind of give you some characteristics of apocalyptic literature. Number one, it usually involves visions. Visions that reveal the end of this present age. Visions and dreams, things that people see. It also involves a conflict between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, like this cosmic battle between good and evil. One thing you also see in apocalyptic literature, and especially we'll see it in chapter 7, and you definitely see it in the book of Revelation, you've got heavenly scenes where things go on in heaven, and you've got earthly things of, sing, of scenes of things that go on on earth. And it shows the contrast between what's going on in heaven in the throne room of heaven and what's going on in earth. 
Um, and it's a cosmic conflict, and in apocalyptic literature, we don't have to guess who wins. God wins. <clears throat> now, it may not tell us all the juicy details we'd want, but it does tell us that justice prevails and God brings things to an end in his, in his timetable. But here's the hard thing about apocalyptic literature. There's mysterious imagery. There's symbolic numbers. There's weird beasts. And there's just some things that we're not familiar with, especially because we didn't grow up as an Israelite in that culture and kind of understand the imagery. So there's some complex imagery, numbers, beast symbolism that we're going to have to kind of wade through. But here's the point. This is what I want you to understand about apocalyptic literature. This is really the purpose of Revelation as well. End times teaching is not to make you scared. It's not to make you speculative of what's going to happen. It's to give you comfort and security that God wins in the end. That's really the purpose of it. I think sometimes we lose the force of the trees and we want to know how everything turns out and get into all the intricacies that we fail to realize the purpose why it's written is to give us assurance that God wins in the end. Now, how that unfolds, we may have some disagreements or some debates, but ultimately, God will triumph in the end. So, Daniel 7 is the centerpiece of the book. It's the very middle of the book. These issues that we see in chapter 7 are going to be repeated in the rest of the book. And so, in this chapter... It does show us earthly scenes and heavenly scenes. Earthly scenes and heavenly scenes. And there's this dramatic cosmic conflict with some symbolic imagery of what Daniel sees. Now, here's the interesting thing about Daniel, and here's the interesting thing about John. When they wrote, especially John, when he writes in the book of Revelation, he'll use the word like. And it's not because he's a valley girl. Like. It's like, this is what he says. It was like such and such. It was like, he like, it's the only thing he can equate it to is what he knows here on earth. So he's like, it's like this. Not quite sure what it is, but it's like this. So he's telling us the best he can what, what he sees, what, what we would understand. So here's the main point. Here's chapter 7 in a sentence. Okay? Here's the main point of this chapter. There is a coming day of judgment when God's enemies will be conquered and he will win the final victory. So in this one chapter, it shows us God's sovereign ending to world history and being successful and victorious. So we're going to take this in four parts tonight. Heavenly scenes, earthly scenes. Four parts, okay? So here's the first thing that we see tonight, and we see this in verses 2 through 8. The first thing we see is gruesome beasts of the earth. Gruesome beasts on the earth. So let's dive into this fun stuff and read verses 2 through 8. Everybody there? Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked at its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. 
And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Beasts emerging from the sea. Very similar to Revelation 13 when the beast comes out of the sea. Now, why the sea? The churning of the sea. In the Hebrew mind, in the Old Testament understanding of things, the ocean or the sea represented the cauldron of evil. The Leviathan swam through the sea. In apocalyptic literature, the sea, the oceans, almost always birth evil. Go back to Revelation 13. We'll, we'll, we'll go there tonight again. The beast, the first beast, there's two beasts in Revelation 13. There's a beast from the land. There's a beast from the sea. The first beast comes from the sea. Now, these are four beasts. Now, what do these four beasts represent? Now, there's, there's a lot of debate among scholars as to this. And so I'm going to give you where most evangelical conservative scholars land. This is our camp where, where we would understand this. And we've already kind of seen this in, in chapter 2. So this is not new, per se, in Daniel chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the, um, the, you know, the, the head of gold and then the different parts of the body and, the, and then the, um, the, the big boulder, the rock that came and crashed it. So um, let's just talk about these, these beasts. The first gruesome beast with the lion and the eagle's wings represents the kingdom of Babylon. Now, that's King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. You can go back to the historical record. You can go back to other places in the Old Testament. You can go back to archaeology, and you will find out that Babylon's two main images were a lion and an eagle. They found statues of winged lions in the ruins of Babylon. So even archaeology tells us this is, this is Babylon. Okay. So Babylon was the first great nation besides Egypt, if you go all the way back to, to further back in time. But in this period of Israel's history, Babylon was the first major world power to take over the world and especially conquer Israel. They conquered Israel. They burned down Jerusalem. They carted the people off into exile. Okay? But Babylon came to an end. There was another nation that came after Babylon. And so that's the second gruesome beast. And that was the Medes and the Persians the Medo-Persian Empire. They followed Babylon. This was the bear. The bear came and the bear ate. Remember we talked about earlier in Daniel chapter 6, the writing on the wall? Remember they were having that party and that night what happened to Belteshazzar? The Medes and the Persians came in and, and overtook Babylon that night. So the Medes and the Persians literally in history came and took over. Now, now here's the amazing thing about this, guys. 
Daniel, this is where liberal, let me just stop here and give you kind of a side note here. This is where liberal scholars have trouble with Old Testament because they ask themselves, how could Daniel predict this if it hadn't happened yet? This must have been written thousands of years later and imported back after the fact, and it wasn't written in the contemporary time of Daniel. Now, if we believe that God inspires Scripture and God does supernatural and God guides the Scripture to be inerrant, we have no problem with Daniel being able to predict the future. It's just liberal scholars, especially in Old Testament studies, they don't understand how a man could predict what happens in the future and actually come true and write it before it happened. But that's exactly what Daniel's doing here. So Babylon's first, Medo-Persians are second. Okay, what's the third in history, by the way? If you could look at the historical record, and this hasn't happened yet in Daniel's, when Daniel's writing it, but we look back and see it. The third gruesome beast, the four-winged and the four-headed leopard is Greece. Now, the wings represent the lightning speed in which Alexander the Great conquered the known world. So much so, if you guys remember, Alexander the Great conquered the known world, the known world that on his 30th birthday, he sat down and cried because there was nowhere else for him to conquer. He'd conquered the world. There were no more lands. Now, why the four heads? Notice what it says there. Verse 6, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings, a bird's on its back, and the beast had four heads. Now, why four heads? Well, after Alexander the Great's death, the kingdom of Greece was divided up into four kingdoms. And we'll talk about that as we go through that. Now, you know your world history. What's the next major empire to come on the scene that was the greatest of all of the empires that superseded Babylon, superseded the Medo-Persians, and even superseded Greece? And, and, and here's personified as the most terrifying. It's got teeth of iron. Yes, Rome. So the fourth beast, the one that's more powerful than all the first three, the one that has iron teeth, the one that's most gruesome, is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, they really did conquer the known world. And also the Roman Empire was the, the kingdom that was in power when Jesus was born. They were the ones who invented crucifixion. Didn't know if you knew that. So Jesus had to be born during the time of the Roman Empire because crucifixion did not exist before that. So God ordained even that the Romans would be the ones that would institute crucifixion. Now, isn't it interesting that even today, nations have animals to symbolize their power? The Russian, what? Bear. The Chinese, dragon. The American, eagle. I mean, we even have beasts, if you will, in modern day to represent the power or the glory of, of a nation. Now, from this monstrosity comes a little horn with eyes like a man speaking great things. Go ahead, Brittany. And, and what do you think the ten horns are? We'll get, the ten horns represent Rome. Okay. Yeah, because there were the ten kings... And yeah, so most scholars believe the ten horns represent Rome because I can get into that a little bit more, but you have, um, there's basically the ten, there's like ten different emperors or ten different kingdoms that, that represent the Roman Empire. Okay. 
yet. We'll probably get more into that when we get into chapter 9. But let's ask the question, who's this little horn? Now, when we mean horn, we're not going, bah, 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 bah. let's talk about what we mean. Horn means like what you see on an, on an um, what's it called? Ibex or a, what's, what's those things? The uh, antelope. Yeah, like a, not a unicorn, but like an ant, like no. antlers. Yeah. But yeah, like a horn that you would, that you would, um, an antler. Yeah, like an antler, horn. Who's the little horn? See this? the antichrist it's the man of so he goes by different names he's called the antichrist in john he's called the man of sin or the man of lawlessness in first and second i mean in second thessalonians and he's called the beast from the sea in revelation okay and so daniel here he's called the little horn now little horn why is he called the little horn he thinks he's big, and he thinks he can stand opposed to God, but in God's eyes, he's little. Now, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, okay, that day, the day of the second coming of Christ, the, the return of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So there has to come a rebellion. There has to come a great falling away. There's got to come a time of, of, of tribulation and, and falling away. The man of lawlessness is revealed. One man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay. Let me just stop right here and give you my end times views. There have, and there always will be, quote-unquote, antichrists who come against God's people. Men, especially in history, who rise up against God's people. But, or however, there will be one final end times man of lawlessness who will be the ultimate beast antichrist that will be the final culmination of all these thousands of years of people coming against God's people. So it's kind of a both and. There's always going to be people, there's always going to be persecution either by, so let me write it down this way. There's always going to be persecution against God's people that may come from governments or that may become from leaders of governments. So you can think of a leader of a government like Hitler or Stalin or Saddam Hussein or Kim Jong-un. Behind every totalitarian government, there's usually a figurehead or a leader. And they're always coming against God's people. And so how it all works together, don't ask me. But when that final time comes, there will be a man of lawlessness who will be the final end times antichrist. Okay? But here Daniel brings him up. Okay, But I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees. Okay? 
We can be safe to view these as literal kingdoms in history. Babylon, Medo-Persians, Greece, Rome. But one of the issues in apocalyptic literature is that there are more significant meanings that span all of time until the end. So while these are four literal kingdoms, they are representative of all ages, nations that come against God's people. So there's always going to be, throughout the history of the world, nations that rise, nations that fall, that will come against God's people. These are representative in history, but it spans further out until finally the end. So, on the other hand, although these are literal kingdoms that came up in history, we can also be safe in seeing that in every age, God's people are still on earth until the return of Christ. There will be gruesome and beastly kingdoms that will try to oppose God and his church. In every age, there will be persecution and opposition. Now, let me just ask you a question. Do you think things in America will be getting better or worse? Worse. That's an argument that we could probably have for a lot of days. I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that until Christ returns, we are promised persecution to some degree or another. Now, in the very last days... And we could be living in those. I don't know when that will strictly be. This fourth kingdom of terror will rise with the man who will emerge as the Antichrist. Okay, so historically in history it was Rome. In the future, or now, or whenever, whenever that final nation comes, it's going to be like Rome. It's going to be terrifying. It's going to be worldwide. And there's going to be one man that's going to be over everything. Here he's called the little horn. In Revelation he's called the beast. In 2 Thessalonians he's called the man of sin. Okay? Now, this is not meant to scare you. Like I said. Because in just a few moments we're going to see that he's judged and that he's destroyed. Okay? So apocalyptic literature tells us the end of the story. We don't have to worry about it. Okay, so that's an earthly scene. The earthly scene, it starts out, Dan, now think about how freaked out you'd be if you were Daniel and you saw this. Gruesome pictures, like I don't even know what I'm seeing. So this is an earthly scene of individual specific nations that are terrifying, that are on the earth, representative of not only the nations that were historically in time, but also kind of symbolic of all nations that are oppressive and persecuting of God's people and, and, and how leaders arise out of those nations that persecute God's people and that one final leader will emerge, the Antichrist. Is everybody following me so far? Okay. Now, remember I said apocalyptic literature switches from earthly scenes to heavenly scenes. And, and it does that so we can catch our breaths. If all we had were earthly scenes, we would be like, oh gosh, this is, this is heavy. So we gotta, we gotta recalibrate and so Apocalyptic literature says, oh, we've been weighed down by earthly scenes. Let's go up to heaven and see what's going on there. So here's the second thing we see. The second thing we see tonight is the glorious throne room of heaven. Now, why do you think we need to go up and see what's going on in heaven? If all we have is an earthly perspective of all these nations coming against God's people, we could be very depressed unless we see who's really in charge of everything. So let's, let's see what happens here. Verses 9 through 14. 
As I looked, thrones were placed in the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands, thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked. The beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Okay, now we get to see the glorious throne room of heaven. And God the Father here is called Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days. That's a cool name. The Ancient of Days. Meaning he's the everlasting God. And how is he clothed? Pure white. Now, this is where some people get the weird pictures of God like a grandfather up there rocking with white hair. Remember, this is symbolic. This is symbolic. It's not like God literally has white hair and he's in a rocking chair. The, the white symbolizes purity and holiness. And there's fire coming out. Okay, It's like he's on a chariot of fire. He's on his throne. So we, he's the ancient of days. He's the everlasting God. He's the God who dwells in unapproachable light that no one can see. He's glorious. So Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's the eternal God who has no beginning, who has no end. He's the ancient of days. Okay, Psalm 104, 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless, o Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. God is clothed in light. He's the everlasting God. He's the ancient of days. Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. He's the everlasting king. Okay, that's Old Testament. What about New Testament? 1 Timothy 1, 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16 which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see to him, the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Unapproachable light, ancient of days, glorious throne room. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, I want you to notice verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. God's sitting down. Why is God sitting down? Obviously, because he's the king. But have you ever noticed that God sits in heaven? He's not bustling around worrying what's going to happen. He's not wringing his hands with anxiety. Oh, I don't know what these gruesome beasts are going to do. I better get busy. I better get frantic. I better work up a plan. You know, God's not up there running around the kitchen like it's on fire trying to put out fires. 
He is calmly, sovereignly seated on his throne with all power and glory and majesty and righteousness and holiness. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to think about what we just read. Okay, so, so let's look at that just one more time. So the throne had fiery flames, its wheels were burning, a stream of fire issued, thousands and thousands served him. Um, he, he's on this throne surrounded by glory. Now, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 4 because Revelation chapter 4 is a parallel chapter to what we see right here. Because Revelation 4 takes us into the throne room of heaven. So go to Revelation 4, then come back to Daniel. I want to show you how the Bible, what Daniel saw with the Ancient of Days in the throne of heaven is the same thing that John saw in his vision when he saw God the Father on his throne. Okay? Everybody there, Revelation 4? We won't read the whole passage, but I just want to show you. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what soon must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. What's the first thing John sees? Throne. Throne is the most repeated word in the book of Revelation. I think it shows up some 40 to 50 times. What's Daniel see? God seated on a throne. Okay. Verse 3, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with the golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, as it were, was a glass of sea like crystal. And on and on and on with the myriads upon myriads of angels there. You get the picture, right? The Ancient of Days is seated on his throne as King of Kings and Lord of Lords in unapproachable light and fiery brilliance, ruling and reigning. But I want you to go back to Daniel and I want you to look at something at the end of verse 10. Books were opened. Books were being opened. What do we know is going to happen at the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation? Books will be opened. So Revelation chapter 20 12 through 15, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Okay, same wording. Books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what Daniel sees is almost like the final judgment that John sees with the book of life being opened. So here's the point. If your name's not in the book of life because you haven't trusted Christ for salvation, you experience the second death, which is the lake of fire, or eternal conscious torment in hell. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, 
you receive the glories of heaven. Now, who's judged in Daniel? Books were open. Who's judged? Read it very carefully. Look at verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Who is burned in fire? The little horn. The Antichrist. The beast. The man of lawlessness. Now, does the Bible say the man of lawlessness will be destroyed? Yes. Paul says that when he comes, Jesus will destroy him with his breath. But at the, book, at the end of Revelation, we don't have to guess. Revelation 19.20 says this. And the beast was captured. That's the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the beast. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So you know the end of the story. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, gets thrown into the lake of fire. He gets judged, along with the false prophet. And Daniel sees it right here. He sees his body being destroyed and burned with fire. Now, Daniel doesn't know the full picture that this is eternal conscious torment in hell. This is a lake of fire. Daniel just sees kind of an Old Testament image of what we have fuller teaching in the book of Revelation. Now, let's keep reading because we've seen God the Father, right? The Ancient of Days, seated on his throne in glory and majesty. Okay, this becomes what I think is the most fantastic part of Daniel where we see none other than... Jesus himself. You ready? Verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You have two persons in this passage, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. God the Father, God the Son. This is Jesus presenting himself to God after his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, why is he called a Son of Man? Jesus' famous statement for himself in the Gospels was to call himself what? The Son of Man. Now, he was also called Son of God, but he also called himself Son of Man. Mark 14, 61 through 62. This is Jesus. He remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus read Daniel. Okay, Jesus knew the Old Testament. Jesus knew that that's what's going to happen. He's the Son of Man that would be seated next to the Ancient of Days with glory and power. So what Daniel is seeing here in this vision is a vision of the ascension and session of Christ. We don't often talk about the session of Christ. Talk about his life, perfect life. Talk about his sacrificial death on the cross. We're very familiar with that. Talk about his burial. We talk about his resurrection and Easter. We talk about his ascension. Okay, but what's Jesus doing right now? 
He's seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, ruling and reigning with power and glory until he comes back. And that historically has been called the session of Christ. I'm not sure why they call it the session, but it's his ruling and his reigning. And so what it means is, and notice, notice his rule and his reign. He's got dominion. Verse 14, all peoples, nations, and language will serve him. So what Daniel is seeing is the resurrected and ascended Christ coming into the throne room of heaven, being seated right next to the Father, saying, I've completed the work, and now Jesus is seated there next to the Ancient of Days, ruling and reigning, putting his enemies under his feet as the King of kings and Lord of lords until the Ancient of Days says, it's time for you to go back. And so we see Paul especially write about Jesus having rule and reign right now as a result of his death, burial, and resurrection. So what does Paul say in Ephesians 1, 18 through 23? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Okay, what's this power? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. You guys see those words there? Rule, authority, power, and dominion. What does Daniel say right here? Verse 14, dominion, glory, kingdom everlasting dominion, a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And Daniel sees that. It's amazing. Daniel sees that in a vision. Probably didn't understand anything about what it really meant that this was Jesus of Nazareth and that he would have you know, come in the flesh and lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose again. Daniel probably had no clue. He just sees one like the son of a man being presented before the ancient of days and being seated with all power and authority. Daniel gets to get a glimpse of that. Philippians 2, 9-11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so let me just ask you a question. It's a trick question. Do you make Jesus the Lord of your life? No, he already is Lord. You don't make him anything. He is already Lord. You submit to who he already is. If you quote unquote make Jesus Lord of your life, you're the one in charge. I'm making him the Lord of my life as if you're like, as if you can really do that. No, he is Lord. He is King. Our, our duty is to submit ourselves under who he already is rightfully as King of Kings. Now, the writer of Hebrews tells us this, Hebrews 1.3, Jesus, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what does Daniel see in the throne room of God? 
He sees the Ancient of Days, God the Father, seated on the throne with all power and glory and majesty. And then he sees Jesus being presented to the Father on virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, ascending back up to the right hand of the Father, being seated with all power, authority, and dominion. Now, at that point, it should have given Daniel great encouragement to know that who's truly sovereign. Okay, so what did I say about apocalyptic literature? Earthly scenes? Heavenly scenes. Earthly scenes, heavenly scenes. Okay, now we go back to earthly scenes. So in the next section, section three, we see growing hostility on the earth. Growing hostility. Well, let's go back. Verse 15, and let's see what Daniel understands. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions in my head alarmed me. Well, yeah, we can understand that. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which it devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left of its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, a horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints." And prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of its kingdom, ten kings shall rise and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down the three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. All right. Now we switch back to these gruesome beasts. And so Daniel wakes up, freaked out. He's like, I, I want to know what I'm seeing here. I don't understand. He's seen a lot of things to give him nightmares, really. He's seen beasts, and if that's not crazy enough, he sees the throne room of heaven, where he sees the Ancient of Days in Jesus and the glory. And Daniel wants to know what he's seen. So evidently there's an angelic being there that gives him the answer. That's pretty nice, right? Hey, hey, angel, tell me what this means. Okay, I'll tell you. So the angel tells him what it means. And basically what the angel says to Daniel is this. There's going to be a cosmic conflict between these four beastly kingdoms and the saints of the Most High, God's people. Now, verse 18 is important because verse 18 tells us, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Okay, regardless of the persecution, 
regardless of what comes against God's people, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom. It gives us hope that as God's people, we will receive an eternal, unbreakable, powerful kingdom ruled by the absolute sovereign king himself, Jesus Christ, as the radiant son of God. We're receiving a kingdom that's unshakable. It reminds me of what Hebrews chapter 12 says. Therefore, let us be grateful to be, that we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, Daniel is concerned about this fourth beast. It's terrifying. It's more powerful than the others. So Daniel's like focused in like, okay, angel, tell me about this fourth beast. He's gruesome. He's worse. And so from this fourth beast, the angel goes on to tell him pretty much, again, representative of the Roman Empire, but symbolic of that final empire, that final world order, whatever you want to call it, that will come against God's people and then the man that will emerge out of that. Okay? Now, the little horn is going to make war. Look at verse 21. The little horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. This is persecution in all periods. Remember what I said, there's always going to be Antichrist. They're going to be coming against God's people. But the end times man of sin will come against God's people and persecute them. And notice what verse 25 says. Verse 25 uses a very interesting term there. You guys see it? He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Wear them out. Hostile persecution. And what's he going to do? He can, he's thinking he can change times and laws. I don't know what that means. But it could mean that whoever this guy is, whoever this world order is, they are going to make it almost impossible for Christianity to be anything legal or anything represented on the earth. Probably by this time, the church is underground. Maybe. Maybe he wants to stamp out Christianity. Maybe he wants to pass laws and make it impossible to worship Jesus. Now, we see the kingdom with ten horns in Revelation as well. Revelation 17, 12 through 14. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. Now, don't ask me exactly what this means, but at the very end, the Antichrist will lead a coalition of world leaders to try to make war against Jesus. Okay. Let me give you a little bit of, um, maybe, maybe you've heard of the Battle of Armageddon. There is no battle. Go back and read it. There is no battle. Jesus shows up and destroys them with his breath before there's even a battle. People think they can amass 
and come against Christ and his people, and they will. They will bring persecution. Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28-31. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than the sparrows. Okay. I want you to notice what the beast, what the little horn, what the Antichrist is going to be doing in verse 25. What does he do? At the, what does it say at the very beginning of verse 25? He shall speak words against the Most High. He will spew blasphemies against God. In 2 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness will try to set himself up to be God. Listen to Revelation 13. Remember, Revelation 13 is the parallel passage here. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling and those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to it over every tribe, people, language, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. Okay. This is where you may get a little nervous. God sovereignly ordains that for a period of time, this man of lawlessness will have power to wield and to wage against God's people. Now, why God does that, I don't know. But let's just remember something. Let me just add, let's, let's, this is a theological sidestep here, okay? Can Satan do anything without God allowing him or permitting him to do anything? Satan has to do only what God... Satan can't go against God. So even if God ordains for Satan to do something, Satan can only go as far as God will allow him to go. So Satan can never do anything that God doesn't permit him, allow him, ordain him to do. So God is sovereign over Satan. It's not like yin-yang, two equal opposing forces. Satan's is equal with God. No, God is sovereign, and he, he ordains all that's going to happen. Now... Anti. He's going to speak blasphemies against God. We call him the Antichrist. Anti can mean two things in Greek. Anti, the prefix can mean against. I'm against, like, I'm anti stuff. That's what we know, normally know, know anti. I'm against God. I'm against Jesus. I'm against Christ. Anti. But probably, this is the one you're not, you're not that familiar with. It could also mean in the place of. Not only against Jesus, but an attempt to stand in the place of Jesus. I think it's a both and. The Antichrist comes against Jesus and wants to stand in the place of Jesus. I'm going to utter blasphemies against God, and I want you to worship me as God. Now, let's stop, because be, this is kind of heavy, right? Antichrist, in the world, persecution, Tribulation. Should this threat 
Or should this threat and persecution make us panic? Should this make us depressed? Should we be defeated? No. Why? We'll go back and read verse 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. No matter what type of earthly trials we endure, it will not come anywhere close to the glories we will have in eternity with Jesus. Let me just read to you Romans 8. You guys know this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God. We just saw that. Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from his love. Not even an antichrist or a man of lawlessness. If your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're protected. You're sealed. You're good to go. All right. So, gruesome earthly scene, these four kingdoms. Heavenly scene, ancient of days on his throne, Jesus being presented, sovereign kingdom. Earthly scenes again, Daniel's like, what in the world's going on here? And then, so how does the chapter end? Okay, so the fourth thing we see, remember I said there's four parts. It ends on a high note. It ends with the greatness of the kingdom of God. So let's see how the chapter ends. Verses 26 to 28. But, remember, this is like, so the Antichrist will have a period of time where he will come against God's people. It will be cut short. It doesn't last forever. He will be thrown in the lake of fire. Verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. That's the Antichrist. And be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So the, the chapter closes with hope of the absolute sovereignty and greatness of God. His kingdom prevails over the four kingdoms and over the little horn. And so um, here's what I want us to think about. I think right now with what's happening in Israel, you've got a lot of people making prognostications then I think there's legitimate fear. Is World War III coming? Is this the end? 
And I don't know. I think we need to pray and be vigilant. But I also don't want us to lose the forest for the trees. You can read the headlines and listen to the podcast and watch the news and listen to all these prophecy things. And you can think things are getting crazy and things are getting out of control. But I want to remind you that we never need fear that evil will overpower God. Now, I'm not saying we won't ever suffer. I'm not saying we won't ever experience persecution. Or we may not go through a time of testing. But the word ultimately means ultimately we will be victorious. And so we can fix our eyes on all the things that are happening in this world right now. And I think you need to be informed. I think it's okay to ask questions, to healthy speculation. But if you're not careful, you can become a worrywart with all that's happening and get bogged down in all the details of Bible prophecy pull out your charts and graphs and listen to all the prophecy people right now and not remember the point of this chapter. The point of the chapter is to say God wins and God is sovereign and we receive a kingdom and we will never be shaken. So the point of this chapter is this. Our Heavenly Father is the Ancient of Days. He's given us Jesus, the Son of Man. He has all authority and power to vindicate his holiness, make all things right, and judge evil. Christ has already won the battle on the cross, and he will win the final victory in the end. And we will be a part of this as his people. Now, I want to show you... Okay, so what Revelation chapter 19 says, the beast was thrown into the lake of fire. Daniel here says the little horn, the beast, was burned and he was judged and his kingdom was taken away. Okay, what does Paul say? This, this, I'm trying to show it all cooperates. Paul talks about the same man of lawlessness. Let, let, let me show you 2 Corinthians 8 and let me show you how Paul says the victory is ultimately going to come through Christ in the end. So 2 Thessalonians 2, 8-13, 2 Thessalonians. And then the lawless one will be revealed... That's this little horn, that's the man of sin, that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth at his coming. But what's the issue here? Do you notice three times? People perish because they refuse to believe the truth and so be saved. It ultimately comes down to this cosmic battle, a battle for truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So what's the beast going to do? 
What's the Antichrist? What's the man of lawlessness going to do? He's going to do, under the power of Satan, everything he can to what? Try to distort the truth. Do you have people today living, believing lies? All the time. One of the gravest things that could happen to a Christian is to be lulled and seduced by the lies of the enemy and not believe the truth. People all over this world are living in darkness and blindness with blinded eyes. So, let me ask you a question. How did you ever come to know the truth and believe the gospel and have your eyes open? I know the answer. It's because you were smarter than your friend. You were more spiritual than those people in those places across the country that have never heard. You were really worthy and did a lot of good deeds. Is that why God opened your eyes? No. God opened your eyes because it was an act of grace that he did not have to show you. Before God opened your eyes, you believed falsehoods. And God opened your eyes to the truth. And so when God invaded your heart, it was what we call irresistible grace. You couldn't help but fall on your knees and worship Jesus and see him as the way, the truth, and the life because your eyes had been opened. Now, at Emmanuel, we talk a lot about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and we should. Talk a lot about the cross, a lot, and we should. But we also need to think about the second coming. Why? When we understand that Jesus is coming back in all of his glory, and will right the wrongs and bring about justice and final salvation, it strongly motivates us to persevere in the Christian life. How do you remain faithful? Because you know Jesus wins. How do you remain faithful? He's coming back. How do you remain faithful? He's promised us an unshakable kingdom. How do you remain faithful in the midst of falsehoods and lies and persecutions? Because Christ wins the victory, and you're part of that, or you're more than conquerors. Listen to what Jesus says. This is the very end of Revelation. Revelation 22, 12 through 14. It's Jesus. Behold, I'm coming soon. Bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter by the city gates. What was forfeited in the garden? The tree of life. What do you have access to in heaven? The tree of life. How do you wash your robes and get yourself ready? Is that something you do? No, it's something Christ does for you. And he washes your sins away. He washes you, you're dirty, you're grimy because of sin, and you get brand new clothes that Jesus bought and paid for with his blood. So, what's the ultimate hope of Daniel 7. Here's the ultimate hope. God will conquer through his son Jesus and all the beasts of this earth will one day have justice. So let's keep our eyes on the heavenly throne, the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man, the exalted Christ, and let's run the race with endurance keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, because here's the issue. This has happened ever since the beginning. Beasts will come and beasts will go. 
Kingdoms will rise. Kingdoms will fall. Things will go from bad to worse. But Almighty God is on his throne, and he reigns supreme. So let me close with my favorite verse from Isaiah, my favorite verse in the Old Testament about God's absolute sovereignty. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. There's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. And I want you to notice something there. We'll go back to that slide. God declares the end from the beginning. doesn't say God predicts or God guesses the end. God declares it. God declares what the end's going to be. God knows and declares and purposes what yet has not to come. So God not only knows what has happened in the past, God ordains whatsoever happens in the future. God has set the times according to his sovereign purpose. And God says, my counsel is going to stand. I'm going to accomplish it. I'm going to do it. Nothing can stop it. I'm absolutely and meticulously sovereign over all things and no purpose or plan of mine can be thwarted. I'm going to accomplish all of my purposes because I'm the ancient of days on my throne. I've sent Jesus to die on the cross. He rose again. He's ascended up to heaven. He's right now interceding for us and he's going to come back one day in power and glory and he's going to make all things new. And that should give us the greatest confidence in the world when things are kind of crazy down here on earth. Thus ends Daniel chapter 7. Unless you guys have questions or comments. And don't ask me something I don't know because this is a difficult stuff. I'll just say I don't know. You guys got questions? What is the Antichrist or the little horns relationship to Satan? Like, yeah, it's a good question. It's a, it's always confused me. He's a literal man. The end time, I mean, there's always been a man in power, satanically influenced, possessed, demonically empowered. So it's not Satan himself. It's a literal man who is empowered, influenced, directed by Satan more so than any other man that's ever been in a very powerful and persuasive way. So it's not Satan personified like the snake in the garden. It's a literal man who you could say is possessed and empowered and guided, satanically influenced to the highest degree. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I told you this is deep stuff. <laughs> Any other questions? All right. Yes, Brent. Not a question, comment, though. Yep. You know, it's easy for us to say, you know, we should we shouldn't pray. Right. We shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be fearful and everything else. But when I see something like what happened to Job, I mean, it's easy for us now to say, well, you know, God was 
um, teaching him patience and um, endurance and everything else. But I think when we go through tough stuff like what we're going through now, even it's kind of like Job. It's easier for us to see in hindsight sure. versus when you're going through it. Right. And when you see different things, and like you said, I've been bombarded by different um, different theologies and everything throughout this whole thing with Israel. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean... I've tried to distance myself because it could make you go, I don't want to use the word insane, but it could it can get you sidetracked on what's really important. I would much rather say, I don't know all the answers, but I do know God is sovereign. And he's going to work it out. And I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on him. If we go through what we go through, I can't stop it anyway. Even if I figure it out, let's think, let's think even if I figure it all out, what does that help? I figured it out. Was well, that going to stop it from happening? Is it going to prevent you from being a part of it? Maybe, maybe not. The one thing you can control is keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. The one thing God can control, I guess it's like stay in your lane. <laughs> of what you, yeah. So it's easy in hindsight to look back at suffering and, and look at it. It's, it's hard when you're going through it. And that's why we just really need to keep our eyes, healthy dose of the sovereignty of God. Spurgeon, I think it was Spurgeon or somebody said this, God's sovereignty is like a soft pillow you put your head on at night. You can sleep soundly with God's sovereignty, knowing he's in control. So sleep soundly tonight on the sovereign pillow of the ancient of days. And we'll end with that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And Lord, I know this has been a difficult, kind of heavy, thought-provoking time. And we knew that this part of Daniel is going to get that way. And so Lord, thank you for your grace and helping us understand it. Lord, I pray that we would just keep our eyes fixed on your sovereignty. You are the Ancient of Days. You're on your throne. Jesus, you're the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and, and as Daniel says, we're receiving a dominion. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We're receiving uh, this, this, this beautiful inheritance that's been given to us because, Jesus, you want it for us. And so help us just to have confidence in you, Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on you and run the race with endurance. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.